0: The Athletic Hello
1: I'm Mark Chapman, welcome to the Business of Sport pod on The Athletic Matt Slater with us as usual And our guest today is Stuart Robertson Managing Director of Scottish Premiership Champions Glasgow Rangers Rangers won their 55th title last year after financial collapse in 2012, saw them have to climb their way up from the fourth division. So, Stuart, we'll start as we start with all our guests, really, because it's a it's a global audience. So what's your history? How have you got to the position that you are at the moment?
2: Well, my background's financial. I started as an accountant, a chartered accountant, I then worked with PWC for about eight years in corporate finance and moved into a small family office, small investment company. And the main partner in that owned Motherwell. And from there, I, it became one of my projects, essentially. The club had some restructuring issues I had to go through in the early 2000s. I became a director of Motherwell. I ended up effectively becoming the FDMD for a number of years and then later a non-exec. But I never, ever saw my career leading to a career in football, <laughs> I have to say, in the early days. But it's, the, the job at Rangers came about in 2015 when there was a... a the the current board got control of the club and it's obviously been through the travails. It's been well documented over the years and I happened to know one of the directors and just a conversation. Paul had actually phoned me asking for a reference for Stuart McCall, who I'd known from my time at Motherwell. I'd said, how's it going? What's the situation like? Are you look for anybody to come in and help? started as a three-month consultancy. is so now a nearly seven-year period of being here as managing director. But it's been fantastic. You know, a range of supporters. So for me to, to be doing this you my know, two left feet, is uh you know the nearest I'd ever get to working at Rangers and and it's been fantastic to be involved with the people and the team we've got here in terms of rebuilding the club and getting it back to where we believe it should be.
1: So what's quite interesting in, in your
2: background then
1: and, and this is a, a debate that football fans have quite a lot when it when it comes to the people that run their clubs. I'm not necessarily saying Rangers fans this debate, but it's always a debate. How much do you think you need to be a football person to be in your position?
2: It's a great question because it's it is this perennial debate of what well, is a football person. I think it was the first yeah. question. What, what, what actually is it? Is it someone just someone who's played the game professionally? You understand what it means to be on the pitch and the pressures you have to feel. We, we were very clear when we when we got in that we wanted to look at the structure of the club and we spent a lot of time going around some Premiership clubs and some clubs in Europe. To, to understand how they were structured. For us, it was very clear that a sporting director or a director of football was something that a club of this size needed. I don't have the time, frankly, and I probably don't have the knowledge either, to be the best person to be opining on who we should sign signing or not signing or how we should structure the football side of it. It's important that you, yeah, you understand the game and you, you understand the business aspects of the game. But for me, having someone like our current sporting director, Ross Wilson, who had been at Huddersfield, or Falkirk, Huddersfield, Watford, and Southampton, he's very, he's absolutely crucial to make sure our football department is structured in a modern, a modern way and and, and is going to be best place to take the club forward on the football side of things. Because for everything you do around the sides of it, the commercial and the business, ultimately it's about the football. You know, that that's what it's all about. We're a football club at the end of the day. Was that your number
1: one conclusion of researching other clubs that the, the, the number one, the main priority for a modern 21st century football club at the elite level is to have a, a sporting director a football director?
2: I would say it probably is. Our is quite clear. There's, there's me, the MDE, the commercial director, an ops director, sporting director, there's comms, and there's, there's financial. You have to be your academy, your player development, be it your medical and sports science. Your football ops, it, it, understanding and being connected to the market. Your recruitment is so important. Your scouting, recruitment. It's a club where we are in a smaller market, financial market, competing with clubs in bigger television markets. We've got a good supporter base. I think that that would compete with any club. But when you look at the finances we get from television versus some of the big five leagues or even the other leagues in Europe, you know it's a fraction that we bring in. So we have to be innovative. We have to be clever. Can't waste money. To me, the sporting director role—you need somebody to connect it to the market to to make that work. And Ross is very, very important to that, and he's the individual in that role just now.
1: We'll explore TV market. We'll explore crowds and finances in, in a little while. So, but a final one on this, I suppose, at this stage, does that mean, given the structure that you have, that when you lose your manager, as happened recently,
2: it's quite a calm process to replace him. You know, it's interesting. I, I've been here when the process hasn't been so calm, Mark. When we're, when we're boss managers, and you think... <laughs> maybe that's a more, maybe that's a more interesting oh, story. I, 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 maybe I, listen, I, that's, that's one for over a beer. But it's, <laughs> it's about doing your succession planning. An element of that, timing plays a big part in that as well. And luck, with everything in life, being in the right place at the right time, it is important. But, with Stephen leaving, if I take the recent example of Stephen left for, for Aston Villa, you know, Stephen was such a big personality, he made such a big impact in the club, it was a fantastic acquisition for, for the club, and really helped us move forward because he understood what an elite football environment looked like, and it helped us to push on in the off-the-field side of things and the infrastructure side of things. But it meant that once we got the first inkling that Stephen may be moving, we were able to put into practice what we talked about and we were able to get in touch very quickly with potential candidates. We were able to interview them. We were able to do the second interviews, and we were able to make an appointment all within a week. For me, it was as smooth as it could have been. But as I say a lot of the credit for that goes to our sport director, Ross Wilson, because he'd done the background work, the agents, and the people to speak to. And, and you're talking to guys. Just if you're in that, if you're in that space, you're talking to some of these guys regularly anyway. Just as a matter of course, because that's what you do. That process. Compared to the process prior to the recruitment of Stephen and the process before that, it was night and day.
3: Stuart, I, um, I mean, as we started off with a question about you and your history, I think we do uh, always have to remember that not everyone will be across Rangers' remarkable recent history as much as you know the, the three of us are. Uh, I don't want to do the whole thing the whole thing will be a, a, a four-hour extravaganza. But you joined in 2015, right? And I think that's quite an interesting year in the sort of recent history of Rangers because of course the club went bankrupt, had to start in the in the fourth tier of Scottish football in 2012. Two straight promotions, I think. And then that 2014, it was your year first year back in the championship, right? That was the first sort of misstep, wasn't it? Was it two years in that tier? Yes. And you did you join at the end of that first season of the Championship or the beginning of the second? It was in June. I came in in April and right. did a three-month consultancy. And then, So let's just start there, yeah. right? So, so you, you have a club that's gone through this unbelievable trauma mm-hmm. and has dominated the headlines north and south of the border and has, <laughs> has made news around the world, right? But it's on the way back, you know, because you have that enormous fan base. You're always coming back. And there was this sort of, the narrative was when, right? Was it going to be three straight promotions? And when were you going to challenge Celtic? But that year, that 2015 year was an interesting year, wasn't it? Because it was like, oh, wait a minute. We're not fully through the trauma. We've got a bit more fixing to do. So
2: just you know, start there. Yeah, you're absolutely right, Matt. They, you know, we lost the playoff to Motherwell that year. And so we weren't in the we didn't win the league. We were in the playoff spots. Lost to Motherwell. We lost both games from, from memory. And the club was broken. I think I don't think a lot of people realise just how little infrastructure was left at the club when the current board and the current investors came in. And I think even they were surprised that the state the club was in. So we knew there was a lot of rebuilding to be done. But what that created was a fantastic opportunity because you had effectively had a clean sheet of paper to to build a modern football club, an innovative football club, and. We took time. We took that season, that second season in the Championship. Uh, Mark Warburton and David Weir came in and and managed, you know, they got some great football that year. But it gave us time to go and research and go and look at some of the clubs themselves and go and look at, for example, went and played Leipzig, that's Leipzig in a friendly. And we spent a bit of time looking at their academy when we were out there and talking to their guys there. You can never learn enough about what other people are doing. You, You don't have a monopoly and good ideas here. You have to go and see what's going on. And that, actually got us into the premiership. I think we realised quickly there that actually we still had a way to go in terms of the premiership because the, the, the squad was, wasn't at a level that we needed to be compete with Celtic at that time. Celtic had Brendan Rodgers as the manager. They, they had a strong squad full of international players. We had a squad that was coming from the Championship. There were no international players. So, so how do you get how do you bridge that gap? Part of that was the, we knew it would be longer term and that's why the structure was really important. And looking at how we get the building blocks in place. We still had to put some of the fires out that we were dealing with in the first 12, 18 months, but we managed to do that. And then all the focus could go on looking forward. And it's a combination of things. It's really, once you get the structure, it's getting the people. And I can't talk highly enough about the support we've had from the boards and the investors. We've invested the guts of £100 million now, probably a lot more than they thought it would take at the time, if I'm being completely honest. Also, the supporters who continued to buy their season tickets, continued to support the club in, in all the ways that they could, and, and stuck with us whilst we weren't been successful. Because of the pain they'd been through, we realised that actually each year was an improvement on the previous year. And then Stephen joined us in 2018, May 2018. That raised the profile of the club. He got the backing of the board as well, more so than the other managers had, had, to be fair. But he brought a strong team in, and Gary McAllister, and Jordan Milsom and... Cullshaw and Mick Gill as well on the coaching side. So really good guys coming from an elite environment at Liverpool who understood what it took to be there. And we weren't there. Frankly, we needed to make that step up. So they came in. And The boys, uh, Mark Allen had joined us as, as director of football just before that from Man City. And again, Mark had been head of academy at Manchester City. Again, coming from an elite environment and able to say, look, guys, you're, you're not there. You need to up your game. And that's in all aspects. That, that was in scouting equipment. We, we had no scouting and recruitment team when Mark joined. Literally no scouts. And you think, how can a club like Rangers expect to compete at the top level for that level of resource? So Mark started putting in some infrastructure there, the, the medical side of the club, the sports science, the, the infrastructure at the training ground. When it was built in 2000, 2001, it was probably the, the best training ground, training centre in the UK, prior to the big money really hitting the premiership. The club had invested heavily when Dick advocate was the manager. It was now tired, very tired. And it had been built for the first team only, whereas we were trying to run an academy, a first team and a women's team in the same space. So I right, we need to think heavily about this. And, and that needed a lot of investment. And again, investors on the board backed everything that was suggested. Stephen came in and that raised the profile, it probably raised the calibre of player that we were able to, to sign. He then had some fantastic runs in Europe. We went from qualifying round one to the group stage. I think we were only the second team to have achieved that. We did that two years in a row. One of the byproducts of Rangers going into the bottom league was that the Scottish UEFA coefficient dropped to twenty six, which meant you were having to go through four qualifying rounds to get into the group stage of European football. Now, if you go back to two thousand eight, two thousand nine, two thousand ten, when Rangers had been in UEFA Cup final, that coefficient was up at nine ten, and actually you get getting automatic qualification into the Champions League if you won the league. You know you were coming in much later, but when you are having to play your first qualifiers at the beginning of July, it creates a lot of pressure. On the, and then it is a lot of pressure because we were quite quickly saying that we need to be a Europa League side. Let's part the Champions League. And let's take it step by step. And Stephen and the guys achieved that, and you know Stephen got his three runs in Europe. He's now going beyond the group stage for the third year in a row. He was unlucky the first year when we lost to Rapid Vienna in the last game. But that that's been fundamental. And then Mark left, and Ross Wilson joined us two a bit years ago, and again we stepped up. Scouting and recruitment, in particular changed. We, we looked at, we were put a wee bit separate in terms of the academy and the first team and the women. It's now very much about one, we well, the one club ethos in the football side of things and making sure that's right across the club as well. That has taken us to another level. So we've improved our scouting and recruitment. We need to be clever with our scout recruitment. We can't go and spend, you know, the millions of pounds that other clubs will spend on a regular basis. We can do it occasionally. But we were very conscious that one of our revenue pillars in the business had to be clear trading and that doesn't mean you just sell players but there's a start from the eca a couple of years ago now that mm. the clubs at our level if you like where our coefficient was in Europe, yeah. 28 of the revenue came from clear trading so if you're not producing that if you're producing three or four percent you're not on a level playing field you have to get yourself so that's been a big part of investing in the squad Investing in the academy, and these things take time to actually come to fruition in terms of creating a value in the squad. And I think we saw that with Nathan Patterson's transfer to Everton yeah. uh, last week. You know, when he went for, for you know club record fee, which was fantastic. I'm glad you brought that stats up because I was I was going to get to mm-hmm. that,
3: and I think it's I think it's a really interesting part of 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 where the club's at right now. So, I mean, the, the interesting thing to me about Nathan Patterson was it was the first multi million pound sale Rangers have made since 2012, since Nikola Jelovic to, to, mm. to the same club, right? That was to Everton as well. So that's a long time to go without a significant player sale. I suspect you're going to tell me that Nathan Patterson is, is not going to be the the last and that there's now a pipeline. And I, and I, and I guess I can sort of see it that, you know, we've just talked about the journey the Rangers have been mm. on. You, you you probably actually haven't had that many players until relatively recently that would command a, a transfer fee. I mean, is, is, is that fair? Or was there just not any focus on that? Was it so focused on catching Celtic and beating Celtic that you weren't
2: necessarily thinking about developing players? Obviously, we're focused on that because that's, that's the domestic issue. We have to win the league. to By winning the league, you get a chance to qualify for the Champions League. And that, the coefficient, has risen. And it was 11 at the end of last year, which means if we win the league this year, not guaranteed, but a very, very good chance to qualify directly into the Champions League group stage, it's probably worth an additional 20 million quid or thereabouts, which is a big yeah. number for us. But whilst we were focused on the domestic aspect and winning the league, we actually were probably, if not more focused, certainly as focused on the long term sustainability of the club, which was meant, which meant investing in the academy, investing in the infrastructure, investing in the, the hospitality areas around the club investing in the people at the club. And it's credit to the investors on the board that they were willing to take that slightly longer-term view with those investments, because what that allowed us to do was get a squad to a level that's got value. And I agree with you probably up until a couple of years ago. I wouldn't say we didn't have players who didn't have value, but I don't think the club had the credibility to convince other clubs that their players had the value that we thought they had. And actually what's happened now is with the runs in Europe, the number of international call ups we've now got winning the league, big thing. You've actually got players who are winners, and which, which was a key thing. Stephen Gerrard, you don't get a bigger winner than Stephen Gerrard. So, you know, and, and actually instilling that discipline and that belief in people has been a big part of it. There's not only that, there's actually selling Nathan for the money that we sold him for. People begin to think if he's worth that. And actually, Nathan couldn't be, <laughs> wasn't a regular in the first team, he was a young lad come through yeah. and. Behind James here, but he's playing for Scotland regularly, and he's played in old firm games. He's played in European games. He's he's proven he's a quality player. They actually begin to look at the rest of your squad and say, actually, these guys are decent. These guys probably are worth the money that Rangers believe they're worth. But we have to, we had to create that credibility to convince other people in the market and the agents and and boards and and sporting directors. Actually, Rangers players are at that level. They're not at the two, three, four million quid level. They're actually at 10 plus. So it'll be interesting to see how it evolves. You know, it's, mm-hmm. But it's, a, it's, a, it's an important element of our revenue model, our business model, but it's an important ele- element of every club's business model. Like, I listened to your podcast with Edmund Van der Sar. Mm. You look at Ajax, for example, Fundamental, it's how you, how you replace that. I mean, that's where your academy and your scouting recruitment, you go back on that hamster wheel, of actually saying, how do we move these guys on
1: you need to get them to the age where they are playing first-team football and you talk about the investment in your academy and therefore you're developing your own players and so on and so forth, are you still susceptible to losing your young players? You know, Billy Gilmore is obviously the, the prime example here. Do you feel that you are still susceptible as a club to those young players being, well, what's, what's the best legal word? Being taken from you. Yeah, I you, like, you so I was going to say nicked, but that's probably not the best one. Being taken from you. Before, actually, I mean, and I know there'll be clauses and this, that and the other, but you maximise their value when they're a bit older, don't you? There's no doubt
2: about that, Mark. You appreciate where you are. Let's say the future. You know, where is Scottish football compared to English football, for example? And with Brexit, it's probably made us more susceptible to losing players to English clubs because there's the whole work permit situation that you now need to go through for players which didn't exist by selling European players which didn't exist prior to the Brexit. Billy and Nathan played in the same team. They both joined as eight-year-olds and they played and they, and they evolved to the academy network. Billy left three years before Nathan, did four years before Nathan. But I think that that gives you a bit of comfort as you're doing something right and actually the scouting aspect of it. We, we do a lot of work on what's the best age to bring kids in for example. Those two have both, both coming at eight and you think well has that just been a, one of those kind of quirks that happens from time to time and probably too soon to say. We want to keep our best players but we have to then demonstrate there's a pathway and that they will get the experience at Rangers that will allow them to then go and make a career for themselves. Hopefully at Rangers for a number of years but you have to be realistic. When you look at the amount we can pay versus what top premiership club can play, ultimately because of your television money in particular, then, you know, these guys have got a short career. So they, they are going to look at where they can secure their futures. But, you know, we, we try and provide the best possible environment for them. It's back to that elite environment in the academy. We're trying to demonstrate to them that they'll have a chance of coming through. Over the last two or three years, we actually withdrew from the, the underage leagues in, in Scotland. So we can go and play our own games programme. With the kind of best v best games program, we call it. You've done the kind of what Brentford have, Well, it's not have done. B- Brentford. Have, it? My understanding is Brentford have actually done away with their academy. Yeah, they did. Yeah,
1: yeah. Sorry, yes. So they we've did, still
2: yeah. got an academy. But when we get to, when the boys get to level 16, 17, 18, we're going to play in Bayern Munich, we're going to play in Ajax, play Liverpool, Man United, and actually challenge them to play these bigger clubs and challenge them. Clubs with the best academies, you know, Benfica, Porto. Okay, they're only friendlies, so they're not competitive games. But what we have, what became a key objective for us was winning the under-18 league in Scotland. We've kept a team up to under-18 because if you win that league, you then qualify for the UEFA Champions Youth League and you then get to test yourself again. You know, this year we played Hammarby from Sweden, Sofia from Bulgaria, and we'll play Seville in the next round next month. So that's great experience for the lads to play that. What we really wanted to do, you know, you look at how do you get an edge for that as well? So you you have to hire the best coaches. So, for example, I just hired a guy called uh, Zeb Jacobs from Antwerp, who's renowned throughout Europe, who's been one of the most modern, innovative coaches in academies. Dave Voss has come as, has come as from Ajax with Gio, you know, with Giovanni Van Bronkarst, his assistant. But Dave was head of academy coaching at Ajax. So, he's, he's, we think he's a fantastic hire to bring into the club because Dave's knowledge will spread through the academy as well as assisting Gio in the first team. It talks about the people that you've brought in in the past. Yeah. And and
1: I hope to God this, isn't, this doesn't sound like a very English question, <laughs> right? But how you talk about bringing these elite people mm. in to work,
2: what do you say to them to attract yes. them? I think back to specific occasions like Mark and Stephen and, and Ross, for example. There's a big opportunity here, and there was particularly you know, when Mark came in, there, there was nothing. So, Mark had to come in and work really hard at putting some foundations in place. And Glasgow a tough environment, tough football environment to, to to try and do that. And when your, your supporters are, especially Celtic, were clocking up the titles and saying, God, you need to get there, we need to win the league. If, if you, if you, I'm not just a particular kind of person, I think that likes a challenge, you know, there's no getting away from it, it's been a challenge over the last few years but there's, there's been the, the ability to, if you got it to work if you made it work then that will stand you in good stead you know, to have that, you see I managed to improve I got Rangers back to that, that position what Steven did in his first managerial job coming from Liverpool Under-18s at Liverpool Academy, but he knew what it was like to be a big club, he knew what it was like to be a winner and he knew what it was like to deal with that pressure and the intensity even Stephen would say that. Said, Glasgow, Glasgow's, Glasgow you know, a, a bit different in, in terms of dealing with some of that. You're really looking for a particular kind of person who, who is up for a challenge, really, Mark, you know, but who can see a, an ability to move things forward. And I think even when we won in the league last year, someone said to me after that, oh, what, what excites you? And actually what excites me is what we've still got to do. There's still so much scope to actually take the club forward and make sure we don't stand still.
0: This is a paid advertisement from BetterHelp Therapy Online. Do you ever get that feeling that you need to get something off your chest? We all carry around different stressors, big and small, and when we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe place to release and discuss those thoughts and feelings and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. And if you're thinking of starting therapy, why not give BetterHelp a try? It's entirely online and it's designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. All you need to do is fill out a brief questionnaire to match with a licensed therapist. And if things don't click, you can switch to someone new at any time with no additional charge. With over 1,000 therapists in the UK already, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. And because you listen to this podcast, you can get 10% off your first month of online therapy by heading to betterhelp.com slash athletic football. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com athletic football with no spaces.
3: We've hinted at the tv deal mm-hmm. and i'm glad you listened to the, the edwin van der zaar pop because they are there are obvious similarities right mm-hmm. you are an outsized brand in a small tv market and i know you've you've raised this issue you know you feel that the the league has undersold scottish football so just off the top of my head was it is it is it 125 million over five years so 25 billion yeah. ish a year and i think you've raised the point well you know, down south, it's seven, eight million
2: a game. Yeah. And you've got, you've got four very good ones. One of the beauties of playing European football is you, you get to talk to the directors of the other clubs and you find out what's happening in Sweden or Germany or Portugal, wherever you're playing. Our TV deals is about half the size of Sweden. It's about half the size of Denmark. It's about half the size of Poland. It's about a third the size of Holland. A quarter the size of Belgium. About a fifth the size of the Football League down south, yeah. and about a seventh of Portugal. Yeah. Now, portugal a bigger market.
3: And the Football League, by the way, are furious with their deal.
2: Aye, so it, it just is. <laughs> yeah. But when you go back to the basics of it, you take those four old film games. So Sky have been 48 games from, from Scotland, and they pay £25 million. It starts at £7.5 quid a game. I think it's roughly the number. It's maybe not exactly the number, but it's roughly the number. The so four seven and a half is 30 And then there's another 44 games on top of that. Now, you then have market dynamics. There's maybe only one bidder. So, you know, doesn't. You have to be commercial about it. So I'm not, mm-hmm. But I do think we, as a game, with some of the personalities we've had in the game over the last few years, have had the ability to sell it better than we've done. You've had Brendan Rogers mm-hmm. up here, he's a big character. You've had Stephen. You then had Brendan and Stephen going head-to-head, you know, mm-hmm. which is a, mm-hmm. an interesting dynamic. And I just think with some of the players and the quality, but we see how the, the old firm games in particular rank against the English games. They're up there there's no difference
3: so only one bidder right so only one bidder mm. let's just say yeah. that's the market dynamic and that unfortunately is you know is, is is probably the answer right so so what's the solution then
2: is is it is it streaming is it is it is it spl tv oh god there's what? there's a you know when, when i first got involved at motherwell john boyle who was there who looked at a project to establish spfl tv in 2002 believe it or not you know 20 and you think how much the internet and OTTs, progress, since so then. Technology is moving at such a rate that we as a sport, and certainly as a league up here, we, we need to get ahead of the game and looking at where are the trends going. You know, you look at NFTs and, and the digital aspect of that. I just worry that we're not there at the moment, and we need to really start looking at where can we get best value from our IP, you know, from the intellectual properties that Scottish football has. There's always going to be that dichotomy between the old firm and you've got you know, the others who are probably viewed differently, you guys could tell me better how they're viewed down south. But that's certainly the impression you get. And again, I remember coming back 20 years when the 10 clubs resigned from the league and said to the old firm, well, you can go and play each other every week if you want. You know, <laughs> it took about, I think it was about six months before heads getting up together and mm-hmm. they all came together and a new deal was done. I think one of the dichotomies is you do have two such huge organisations, these two behemoths there that, that are so different from the others that. There's always going to be a bit of a know, mismatch, is the right word, but you may be going to have different objectives in your life because we're looking at where we could be and thinking actually we can achieve X, Y, or Z here. But then we're part of a collective, you know, and we're part of Scottish football, and and, and that's something that certainly at the moment is something that, that here we are. And you have to recognise we have responsibilities there as well. Sure,
3: there's of course one other solution to your TV problem. You you change the size of your
2: market. Well, do you see where I'm going? I with can this? see exactly <laughs> where you're going with that. It's, Over the last five or six years it's been different. Belgium and Poland are talking about getting together in terms of cross-border. There was the Atlantic League, as it was called, the concept that's been raised a couple of times in the last five years. What tends to happen when these projects are raised is that UEFA then tweak the Champions League or the Europa League or create a sub-tournament and that gives clubs more value or the clubs that are interested in these competitions. And It tends to be the bigger clubs like you know, the old firm in Scotland, Ajax in Holland, and the left in Belgium and actually, I know we've talked before about the potential of the old firm going down to England as a cross-border league. So from our perspective you can see where a lot of the advantages would be but you need 14 clubs, as I understand it, to vote for any change. You tell me if you think it'll happen. I don't see it happening anytime soon. It'd be uh, <laughs> fascinating. I don't know, what do you guys think of Have the old film in England of Rangers in in South.
1: One, I don't think they'd I don't think they'd ever vote for it. So I think I think it's it's a non starter there. I grew up in an era when Aberdeen and Dundee United were were massive. I can remember going to Old Trafford to watch Mm. Manchester United against Dundee United in a in a European game. I look at Scottish football and I look at those two clubs. I look at Hearts and Hibs. Obviously, I look at there was a. um, what St. Johnston did Johnston, last yeah. year. And uh, I mean, I know they're struggling this year, but what a story that was. Two of the biggest reactions to interviews that I have done on the BBC over recent months one was with Callum Davison after St. Johnston had won the cup yeah. on the Monday night, and he was amazing. But the other one two weeks ago was I spoke to Dick Campbell, who, for our global audience, uh-huh. manages our growth, who they lost at the weekend, but I think they're still top of the Scottish Championship, but they're mm-hmm. part time. And I thought, you've got historic clubs, and in those two interviews, you've got characters. And I thought it was interesting that you, when you talked about Rodgers and Gerard and personality, how important personality is now in the world of modern sport and whether you have to take that into account sometimes when you look at some of your appointments for both attention and commercial reasons.
2: You know, so again, it's another great question. I was down at, so I found I wanted... Formula One companies yesterday actually to see what they do and we're talking about the Drive to Survive programme. Yeah. Oh. But my son's a big Formula One fan. I watched a couple of those programmes and they are fantastic. You know, there's that whole behind the scenes what are, you, what are you exposing yourself to when you do them? You look at the other ones, the football ones that have been done up here but it's fundamentally changed their sport from a point of view of how they're perceived and from the audience that they now reach and it was fascinating yeah. to get that insight into how positive that has been. I mean, there's been a lot of things that's happened clearly through the programmes. It maybe hasn't been brilliant. But actually as a as a concept, that has absolutely driven that industry forward. And then with all the you know the way it finished obviously last season and all yeah. the controversy surrounding that. So I think your point of personality, you quite often hear that personalities are getting out of the game compared to maybe 20 or 30 years ago. Dick Campbell's probably one of the biggest personalities left. Certainly, you all had a great great time with that. I haven't heard it, but you all had a great time with it. Uh, I think it depends on the position you're recruiting for. I think you have to look at setting your metrics of what skill set, what qualities, what attributes are you looking for in every position, and then making sure you've got that individual you know, to the extent you can, you've got those qualities within the individual that you hire.
1: So, bearing in mind what you said about drive to survive, would you open yourselves up? There are huge advantages. You have to open yourself up, don't you, to be to be vulnerable and show some of the negatives. And in some ways, showing those negatives give you a bigger positive with the wider world.
2: We've been asked a couple of times, particularly last season, we were asked and we said no. And I you know, having now heard the drive to survive, I wonder, but we were. It's just part of these things is how they're edited. What kind of control Mm -hmm. do you have over it? And you can be made to look very good and you can be made to look very bad just by editing a couple of words and something. So, you know, it's something we've never taken on so far. Last season, in the end, would have been a fantastic season to have actually had one of those kind of behind-the-scenes documentaries. What we've started doing with our own Rangers TV is doing a behind-the-scenes programme. Now you might say, well, that's a bit sanitizing you, you know, you're, you're doing it yourselves, guys. You're going to make sure it's your message. And, and you're right, actually, in terms of that, because it's important we get a message out to our supporters. Actually, that, those behind-the-scenes programs, and, and they're not they're relatively short, but they always go down very, very well with the supporters. But I know myself, I love watching these things. You love seeing what happens behind the scenes. You just have to maybe take a bit of personal risk if you're going to do going to
3: do these things. I'm glad we've got onto this subject because I, I want to ask you about the decision. Ranges made to charge media organisations for for access, and I and I and I I, I can understand the business case mm. that you are you know for everything we've talked about at the beginning you're you know you're trying to grow your business revenues you know you are in a small TV market you're you're desperate to be sustainable good, and I I imagine you're going to tell me the answer was about growing your in-house channels mm. which you you already
2: said but you know is it working? We felt that like a couple of aspects the. You look at the money. probably all think it should be more. If you look at the money, Sky, BBC, pay for for the rights. They actually pay for the rights. Back in the day, probably going back to the nineties. We call them the mainstream media, eh, terms of newspapers as they were traditionally. We'd always do a bit of advertising with the clubs. Not just not just us, but with other clubs. A bit of advertising. They'd maybe take tables at dinners. They put a bit of money back into the game. So that industry struggled. We know that industry has struggled because of the digital changes there's been in things moving online and how do you monetize what moves online. But we felt that actually what, what you had were publications there that were still profiting from their IP and not contributing anything back to the football club for that. So we thought, well, let's, let's try this and let's see how it goes down. It'd be fair to say we got quite a bit of a kickback. You know, we, we, did, we, we had some, again, you're, as, as technology evolves and publications and subscription channels like The Athletic, for example, Modernizing the way in which we we get a message out there, I suppose, and actually a bit more control of your message, you could argue as well. But we have gradually, but we've sat with the editors, we've we'll, we'll had dinners and we'll talk to them about what we're trying to do. There's probably a better understanding. If they try and do too much too quickly, possibly people been completely honest, we probably tried to take on a, a bigger bite than we could have done. But we still believe in the concept to a degree. And we still we're still having conversations with, with the media. We don't want to be fighting with the media. Absolutely, Matt, That's, there's, there's no benefit to that, but there's times when you have to stand up and fight your corner. And actually, one of the byproducts of Rangers, being what it was for a number of years, it probably came of of an easy target for some people in the media. And we had to actually just stand up for ourselves. And I think we are seeing the difference in the way that we're now interacting and in the relationships we've got with the media. The scope and it'll evolve as well, I think, as, as technologies evolve, and as, that, as, the, as the media industry evolves, I think there will be a coming together of things. Has it worked? It certainly created a lot of debate. <laughs> we continue to debate it with the media, probably up here. Because again, part of what we're trying to do is, part of doing this, for example, is broaden our reach. It's important to us that we get the Rangers brand out, out to as broad a number of people as we can. From a commercial perspective, for example, we've now got just under 50 partners, whereas we had about 10 a years ago. And again, the quality of brand that you're working with improves. Part of that comes with success, but as you can begin to get your message out and people want to be associated with you, that improves the quality, it improves the number of companies and corporates and sponsors that we can work with. So we are conscious. We're not just doing this for the sake of being difficult and having a fight. We actually think there is a longer-term change coming. And maybe we're at the forefront of it, maybe we've disrupted it. A bit more than we should have done or could have done. However, we've kind of got a better understanding of each other maybe, I think, than we had probably in July when we first launched it. I
1: suppose, just following on from, from that discussion, you know, mainstream media would say, well, you, you know, you would still need us commercially. But you would argue, I suppose, that commercially, markets are changing all the time, which is why you talk about digital and apps and. And, and so on and so forth.
2: That's a fundamental thing. Back in the day, the sponsors wanted the, you know, the, the front of the shirt sponsor wanted a picture on the back page of the paper. It's now much more about activations. How can they get access to the players and your manager? How can they get access to your social media followings? You know, how can they promote their products through these channels? And a big part of what we're trying to do in the digital side, we probably have about five or six databases. None of them spoke to one another. None of them joined up. So, you know, if Mark Chapman wants to Buy hospitality from Rangers. You need one login for that, and a different login for your Rangers TV, different login to buy your season ticket. What we need to do, and we're halfway through the project probably, is get one single single sign on so that Mark Chapman is in. We, we then have a full record of all your touch points with the club. And we can then market and promote. And it's much more beneficial for us, much less hassle for you, and hopefully more efficient for you as well as a customer and as a supporter. And and that's, that's there's a big investment going into that just now. What we're finding, it's not about having a name in the paper anymore for sponsors. And they'll still have their coverage in the LED boards around the picture. There is a bit of brand awareness goes on. But the modern partner, the modern sponsors are looking for much more activation from the club. And we've had to up our game to do that. We have to service that. In the same way, we've had to seriously increase our customer service to supporters, supporters. We weren't good enough in the past, but we've changed all of that in the last three or four months. And it's all about making sure you look after people and try and give them what they want. And, and I think what will be interesting in the next couple of years is to see how effective guys who've partnered and sponsored with us I think we will be at that because we need to learn from that as well. You know, this is this is quite an evolution in that market, I think. But uh, we brought in a guy called James Bisgrove who was head of partnerships at, at UEFA and a team that was latterly for the Champions League and Europa League. And that's made a, a big difference to how we, we approach partners How we approach the market and go to market, what we market, for example, how we market the club, the branding of the club, has all been given a modern. It's all been modernised, basically, taking us into where we should be now. And the way, for example, Formula One are dealing with partners and sponsors, and other clubs in Europe are dealing with partners and sponsors. UEFA deal with partners and sponsors. If we're not at that level, we're not going to get these guys to sign up with us. So we've had to lift our game off the pitch in that area as well.
3: We've talked a lot about. Challenges, Stuart. We talked about, you know, where the clubs come from. and But, you know, there is there is something absolutely wonderful and obvious that the Rangers has. You're, you're 150 years old, all right? You're, you're talking to us in front of a, a picture of Ibrox. You've got a famous, famous brand. You've got a famous stadium, famous badge loads of titles, how do you monetize that? You've got fans all over the world, you've got fans in Canada, Australia, wherever, wherever there are Scots, there are Rangers fans. How, how,
2: how do you monetize them? I mean, it's, a bit, it's quite a complicated answer, actually, because lots of different threads come together to try and maximize that. So the 150th anniversary itself will be an opportunity. You know, the club's come a long way since four young lads from Odellshire, you know, who were rowing up the Clyde, decided they were going to form a football team in 1872. And a big part of Rangers is the history and the heritage and the traditions. And with that come the standards at the club. So that, that's a big part of what, we, what we've got. We need to engage with supporters in a modern way. That's really important. You know, For example, we just the new membership scheme was established last year. Now that's just under 40,000 members now from nothing, from, from zero. You know, That's one way. And actually, it's fine saying you've set up a membership scheme, but what are people getting for their, for their money? It has to be something in return. They have to feel they're getting value for that. Uh, otherwise, like any, in this case, supporter, you're going to say, well, the club are just, you know, at we need to see something in come for this. But we need to work really hard at making sure, we need to improve the customer experience of the games, for example, to make sure people keep renewing their season tickets. I think there's a risk that supporters feel their loyalty is taken for granted. But all clubs, I don't think mean, that's a dangerous thing, there's, yeah. you know, so we need to, and we've worked hard got long, long way to go at improving the facilities at the ground. Uh, we need to give them a, something to do, Amazing, I can mean, you know, always come in to do a bit of work prior to a match day. Three hours before a game, you'll have thousands of people milling about the stadium, and there is nothing for them to do at the moment. So as part of the 150th anniversary, the legacy project, building a, it's a building called New edmonds House. There used to be one here that's mm-hmm. House. And actually it's a multi-purpose venue on a match day, it'll be a fan zone. But they'll be indoors and not be outdoors, they not in Glasgow weather, mm-hmm. how do you accommodate yeah. them. And it'll be for families, you know, so you will be able to do a nice environment for people to come in, lots played on, lots entertainment. There'll be a museum as part of that. With our heritage and our history, we actually started this project four years ago and we hired a curator. And it all started that. I'm into the trophy room. I don't think I've ever been into the trophy room at Ibrox. But And I said, we got a list of all of this. And we, didn't, we literally don't, didn't have a list at that stage of what we had in the trophy oh, yeah. room. Said, how do we ensure it? How do we look after it? How do we know what's ours, what's a loan? So it's a massive project. But actually, the museum will be more about telling the story and just displaying trophies. It's the story of the club, where it came from in 1872, where it's been, some of the ups, some of the downs, uh, some of the people, and a big part of it's people, but the social history of the club. Because it's really important to the board, that to me in particular, that we've, for all we've got, this global reach, Mark, that we talk about, we're still a community club. You know, we're, we're in the heart of Govan, Ibrox and Govan in Glasgow. And that's really important to, to the club, it's really important to supporters. You know, our charity foundation does a lot of work in the local area with local local people. We've got a community forum we set up in the last couple of years. For example, residents would complain about maybe a wee bit of antisocial behaviour, you know, on the days of the match or people parking outside their house or across their drives. And it even just the basics of bringing in the local community councils once a quarter and talking to them and understanding their problems and then trying to fix them, actually doing something about it. And it generally tends to be small things you can do quite easily. With a massive lift from that. So so we try and engage with supporters. Oh, whatever the there are Rangers fans and they're all over the world you know, they're all over the world but we in terms of how you monetize it you need to be clever, but you need to do it so that people think they're getting value.
1: On fans and fan experience, and, and I don't know where, we, where we're at with this, I was watching Skyrunner, a, a, a programme not that long ago, of great old firm goals, right, Stuart? Okay. And, what, what, and it was, br- it was absolutely, br- you know, great goals from Rangers, great goals from Celtic. Invariably, somebody had been clumped in the build-up to it and there were three <laughs> players on the floor, like properly clumped as well in the old days. But the goals go in... And the away ends are absolutely heaving, right? Whether that be at Celtic mm-hmm. or that or that be at Ibrox, absolutely rammed. It's uh, it, The atmosphere crackles through the telly. You need Celtic and Celtic need you in the same way that Barcelona need Real Madrid and Real Madrid need Barcelona and Man United need Liverpool and so on and so forth. Where are you at with away fans at old firm games? Because those days of big away fo- you.
2: You 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 want your stadium to crackle, don't you? No, I, I can understand the point you're making there. I think things have probably evolved over time, Mark, is, we, You know, where we I think it's about 800 fans from either side now go to the game. I don't think there, I don't think there will be in a couple of weeks because of the sure where COVID was at the time we had a red zone and we you know there were no fan, away fans in. But yeah. Uh, challenge we're actually changing that at the moment. both teams have now sold season tickets in those areas. And actually it's how do you change that back? How do you and those those supporters have renewal rights. So you actually have a challenge there with changing that. It's not something I see changing in the short term. I don't see changing in the short term.
1: Do your fans want it to change? You know, you talk about when you engage with them and get feedback from them. Do, I mean, maybe I'm just, you know, nostalgic. I don't know. But do your fans want it to change?
2: The vast majority don't, Mark. You know, the vast majority right, don't. Okay. They're, they're comfortable with it. I don't know about the other side of the city. But I certainly, from our supporters' perspective, they're, they're quite comfortable the way it is. So the vast majority uh the line, if I said, everybody. How about standing sections, Stuart? Standing sections, something we've looked at, done some work on, feasibility on. We're not quite there yet, because I think we need to, uh, again, you're, you're moving people and there's various issues to come. We've probably had other priorities, frankly, Matt. I've uh, been above that, and I know there's a group of our fans and who, who, who don't want to hear that, frankly, because I, I get asked the question at the AGM every year, and... You know, and, and I get where the guys are coming from because, you know, and it tends to be younger fans who are, they create the atmosphere and they tend to stand during the games anyway. So there yeah. is an element of that. So as so we take it in the real world, that we understand that we're not quite there with it yet because, frankly, we need to probably improve our disabled facilities before we do something like that. And that's a much bigger issue for us uh, that, that we need to address and is top of the list at the moment in terms of looking at developing some plans for that area.
1: So we're at the start of 2022. If we got you back on at the start of 2024, so two years' time, what one thing would you want to have seen improved or changed within Rangers?
2: I'd love to see us back to the Champions League. Mark, I think that's that's when we'd know we'd go in. Within the league, took us so far. Getting to Champions League, you're right back in amongst the elite. You know, Rangers was one of the founding clubs in the ECA. I think it was 12 clubs at the time. John McClelland, who was our chairman at the time, was the first vice chairman for the ECA until all the the nonsense happened. So I I think getting back to the Champions League would be the number one priority for us as a club. We've got our strategic plans with all the things there, all the detail we're going to do, but I would love to see us back to the Champions League. Thank you very much for coming on.
1: It was meant to be half an hour. We've, We've done nearly an hour. I appreciate you taking us through a whole variety of subjects. been great to talk to you, Stuart. Thank you.
2: No, Thank you, Margaret, Matt, and thanks very much for the opportunity.
1: Right, that's it. You can subscribe to The Athletic now and get a 33% discount. Just go to theathletic.com slash football pod. And The Athletic are recording daily transfer shows at the moment, bringing you exclusive news and insight on any deals during January. And the only place you can hear those podcasts is on the Athletic app or by subscribing to the Athletic UK Audio Plus on Apple Podcasts. You can start your free trial today. I'm back Monday for the Athletic Football Podcast. See you then.
2: The Athletic.